Good day. I'm Sharon Pearson, president of Salem City Club. Thank you for joining us today. It is hard to believe we're already into February of our 54th year. Our next two programs on February 19th and March 5th will feature new leaders in our community. On February 19th, we'll hear from Representative Raquel Moore Green and Senator Deb Patterson. The March 5th program will introduce Salem's new police chief, Trevor Womack. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more information and to register. Salem City Club would not be able to present programs without the generous support of our supporting business sponsors. KMUZ Radio, Eugene Fulbert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, and Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home. Thank you to our supporting business sponsors, our business sponsors, and all of our members for their continued support of our club and our mission to keep the community informed. And now I am happy to introduce Bob Martin, and he is the program lead for today, and he will tell you all about our speaker and today's program. Hello, Bob. Oh, you are muted. Sorry. <laughs> there you are. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, and welcome, everybody. We have a good program for you today. And I want to tell you, first of all, that it's being presented in partnership with the Salem Public Library Foundation and their Salem Reads Community Reading Program. One book, one community. This year's book is Walking with Petey. You see it right here, I think, uh, by Eric O'Gray, Walking with Petey. And the subtitle I think is important here, The Dog Who Saved My Life. When I started thinking about who would be a good speaker for this program, I was reminded that uh, Petey was a shelter dog who really did change and maybe save the life of Eric O'Gray. It's a good read. I recommend it to you. You can get it from the Salem Public Library. So the person I asked was B.J. Anderson, Executive Director of the Willamette Humane Society. And she said yes right away and said something that I think gets right to the heart of that book. She mentioned that the Humane Society and Walking with Petey have something in common, the power of the people-animal bond. We'll come back to that in just a moment. B.J. came to the Humane Society in 2005, and she worked in adoptions. Uh, she worked as kennel manager and as volunteer manager. And in 2014, was appointed executive director of the Willamette Humane Society. She's now a certified animal welfare administrator, the top level national certification that distinguishes executives and managers in the animal welfare industry. It's as, it's as high as you can go. Her education is eclectic and fascinating, I think. She holds a degree in equine studies and uh, she spent two years studying Buddhist philosophy in England. And she holds a uh, multidisciplinary degree from Merrillhurst University, a degree in environmental sciences, philosophy and art. Prior to coming to the Humane Society, 
BJ worked as a stable attendant with the San Francisco Man and Police, a job she described as the dream job, living in San Francisco, riding horses in Golden Gate Park, and taking care of those beautiful animals. He also has worked at the YMCA, the AmeriCorps, Northwest Service Academy, and as an ordained Buddhist nun. Now, back to the people-animal bond. And I think BJ says it very eloquently in her statement on the Willamette Humane Society website. On there, you'll find that she said this, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be a benefit to so many beings, both human and animal, and to help transform the lives of pets and the people who love them. What happens between humans and animals is pure magic. And what I've learned over the years is that through that bond, they save us, perhaps more than the other way around. So I'm happy to welcome now and please give a big virtual welcome to BJ Anderson of the Willamette Humane Society. BJ? Hi, Bob. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Um, I always feel like such a Renaissance woman when <laughs> somebody recaps the whole crazy arc of my life up to this point. Um, it's kind of funny. Anyway, um, I am very happy to be here talking to all of you. Um, I'm very grateful for your interest and, um, and for the Salem Public Library Foundation for choosing Walking with Petey as the book for Salem Reads this year. Um, it is uh, a striking parallel to me. Um, I read, of course, um, I read the book and I love Eric, uh, Eric's description of his journey with his shelter dog. Um, and the more I thought about it as I read it, the more amazed I was at the parallels. Um, I came into animal welfare really uh, out of the relationship that I had with uh, a dog that I adopted. Um, my first dog as an adult, I'd grown up with lots of animals, but this was my first dog as an adult um, that I adopted from Oregon Humane Society. Oh, in 1997, um, in the old Oregon Humane Society, um, before they remodeled so beautifully. Um, I adopted her because of a loss in my family. My oldest brother um, had died of AIDS and um, it was, it rocked my world to have my family uh, suddenly redefined unexpectedly. You know, we have our identities. I have this many siblings, I have this many parents and then um, that identity gets rocked. And all of a sudden something in me was like, it's time, I need to get a dog. And I went to the Humane Society and I went several times and didn't find the right dog to make the connection with until I went in one day and there was a group of puppies in there. And the only one left that hadn't wasn't on hold for adoption was sitting at the back of her kennel, kind of shy, kind of quiet, probably the reason she was the last one left. But she was just watching me. And I said, okay, you know, I'll meet that dog. We went in a little visitation room. It was old. It was cold. It was cement. You know, everything was loud. And um, she was kind of ignoring me and exploring the room. And then somewhere in the facility, a door slammed and it sort of echoed through the room and she dove into my lap. And I thought, okay, she thinks I am a safe place in the world. This must be my dog. And, and I adopted her. And then um, 
in this uh, sort of um, amazing parallel um, to the book that we are uh, reading this year. Um, Libby was actually um, featured in a book called Saved, subtitled Rescued Animals and the Lives They Transform. And um, by a woman named Karen Winnegar, a lovely writer. Um, this came about because um, after I joined the Willamette Humane Society with Libby <laughs> in 2005, she was also honored by Oregon Humane Society as an animal hero with a diamond collar award um, for work that, for experiences that Libby had had saving the lives of other dogs just because she saw that she could help. Um, and that's the kind of dog she was. She was a Border Collie Lab cross and um, she, Filled my, she filled that hole in my family that my brother had left. And um, in a remarkable um, coincidence, maybe, <laughs> uh, on her paperwork, um, when I adopted her, I discovered that her birth date was the same day my brother had died. So I really felt that there was a, a strong coincidence there. Um, and, uh, and she was a powerful influence on my life. Um, the things that I learned from her, she was whip smart, but she wasn't as driven as a lot of border collies. So she was also able to have a pause button and just relax when I needed her to relax. So she didn't drive me crazy. Um, she, she brought me so much joy in my life. I really resonated with Eric's story in Finding Petey and um, the pathways that my life took were very um, unexpected um, and partially due to her influence, I believe. Um, when in 2005, when my wife and I were settled on this farm in Sayo, uh, we weren't really settled. We were living in a yurt and clearing land as fast as we could for all these rescue horses that we had at the time. And it was a, it was a wild time. Um, and uh, one of us needed to get a full-time job and, and you know, benefits. <laughs> It was hard work on this farm. And um, so I found an ad in the classifieds and hopefully some of you on this call are old enough to remember classified ads in newspapers. <laughs> but I saw an ad for kennel manager at the Willamette Humane Society in Salem. And I thought, well, maybe I can do that. Um, and I went and I, I really think that a lot of the reason I got the job was twofold. It was my years in AmeriCorps mentoring um, young adults. There were a lot of young adults working at the shelter and um, they wanted to hire a manager who was good with that population. And then the other half was everything that Libby had taught me about dogs and canine behavior and, um, and the power of the love uh, that transforms both directions um, through adoption. And really through any, doesn't have to be adoption, through any way that you connect with an animal. Um, so I started working and uh, Libby actually helped so much in the Humane Society at that time. In 2005 and six, the Willamette Humane Society was taking in around 12,000 animals a year. Um, our live release rate was less than 50% for dogs and it was less than 30% for cats. Um, it was a tough time to come into animal sheltering, but nowhere near as tough as it was in the 90s or the 70s or the 60s when we got started. Um, 
but we used to do temperament testing on the dogs to figure out who were the good adoption candidates to try to fast track them out on the floor to get them moved into homes as fast as possible to make room for the, the other dogs that were flooding in. And um, part of those tests, we would assess how does a dog behave, you know, with people, with handling, around food, with other dogs. Um, and a lot of dogs that came in didn't have a lot of great socialization and they were really stressed by being in the shelter. And, and um, Libby's job became being our, Libby was my dog, Libby's job became to be the, the expert that we called in on dog behavior to when we had a dog that we weren't sure about or one that seemed like they were really reactive towards other dogs and we weren't sure if we were, you know, this was a safe dog to, to fast track back into the community, we would bring Libby in and she would, she was brilliant at giving these wonderful calming signals to the other dogs. Um, she was very skillful with other dogs. So she would give them these calming signals to help relax their anxiety. And if they responded to her, then we knew those were dogs that we could work with. They just needed some time, some boundaries, some, you know, some instruction, <laughs> which oftentimes Libby provided after hours, I would take her out and let her play with some of these rambunctious out of control young dogs. And she would give them some boundaries about how to play with another dog without overwhelming them. Um, so I really credit her with saving a lot of lives at a time when we were learning as fast as we could and trying as hard as we could. Um, but we didn't always have the skills. And so, so Libby was there with us, um, transformed not just my life, but, um, countless dog lives. And, uh, and when she passed away, um, uh, most of my animals, uh, when they pass, they're buried on our farm. We have 40 acres and I bring them home. Um, and, uh, but with Libby, I decided instead, um, I had her, uh, ashes, um, put in an urn and they now sit in the columbarium that we have at the shelter. Um, and she now continues, um, to watch over Willamette Humane Society and me. Um, so that's a little bit of my journey. Um, another part that Bob touched on, um, I, I was in fact an ordained Buddhist nun for about three and a half years. Um, and what, what brought me to study that philosophy and that, um, that ethic, that way of life and that belief system was that the Buddhist, uh, tenets all begin with, um, a ground of applying these tenets to all sentient beings. So instead of, um, instead of only focusing on humans, like being kind to others meant all sentient beings, um, you know, refraining from harm of all sentient beings. And that really uh, settled in my heart in a way, because I've always been an animal lover. They, horses were my world, of course, uh, who else gets a degree in equestrian studies? Um, but I loved all animals and pretty much without reservation. Um, and so the, the idea of pursuing a path of helping others that included animals as equally as humans was just a perfect fit for me. Um, and uh, so I, I, I really dove deeply into that. And out of a motivation, the reason I, um, I loved it was that I, I wanted to help others. I really wanted my life to be of benefit and that when I get to the end of my life, I want to be able to look back and say, 
uh, or maybe other people will look back on my life at that point. I may not be talking <laughs> um, and say that um, she helped us. She helped me. She helped this animal. Uh, that <clears throat> to me, I don't mean to be verklempt, um, but that to me is really the only purpose we have in our human life is the degree to which we can positively impact others um, or perhaps um, our environment. Um, so here I am at Willamette Humane Society took, taking a job because somebody had to get a job and my dog said this might be something I could do. <laughs> um, 16 years later, I am so proud to have been asked to lead this organization and to be able to lead it. Um, we now, um, through our spay-neuter clinic that's been open, thankfully, uh, since 2010, um, reducing the overpopulation in the community dramatically, we take in now around 4,000 animals a year, and we are able to find um, good outcomes for between 90 and 95% of them every year. And I'm so proud of all of us, both staff and volunteers at the Humane Society and our community for stepping up um, and making that possible. So um, it's taken a lot. It's taken a lot of, of lifting on all of our parts, um, but I really want the community to know how important um, the work is, the collaborative work is that we do together. Um, when we, when we accept these animals and we bring them into our care, uh, we are really just the, the hands and the, and the minds of the community that loves animals. Um, we are sort of the, <laughs> um, the virtual hands for our, for our animal loving community that are able to provide the time, the space, the medical care, the behavioral resources, um, to help these animals that are in transition um, and to find them new homes. Um, so where the title of this talk resonates so powerfully with me is that um, six years ago, when I started as the executive director, the board of directors came together for the, one of those annual strategic planning sessions, um, including a review of our mission statement and at that time we adopted a new mission statement and it said that um, basically encapsulated that Willamette Humane Society exists to establish, maintain and enhance the human animal bond for pets and people in Marion and Polk counties. And that was a big shift for us. Um, I don't think we realized at the time how perfectly it was setting us up to to continue to be really at the forefront of animal welfare um, in the country, um, because this is where the animal welfare field is moving. The acknowledgement that this, this power, this magic, this beautiful thing that happens is a function of the relationship between pets and people or between animals and people. It's, you know, it's there with our livestock, it's there with our wildlife but it's most extraordinarily expressed, I think, in our relationships with our companion animals and, um, and all the science that's coming up behind it that tells us what, what we all know if we, are, if we are 
pet owners or animal lovers, and I'm guessing probably if you tuned into this Zoom call today and took time out of your day, chances are you feel pretty passionately about animals as well. Um, we all know it subjectively. We know the impact that the animals make. We know how much we love them. We have no doubt that they love us back. Um, we understand that they have feelings. We understand they have intelligence that often is different than ours um, and expressed differently from ours, but that, in, that we enrich each other in our relationship. And that is where the animal welfare industry is moving as we balance the pet population in our communities. We no longer have too many pets to place. We're able to find homes for all of our animals unless they are so medically and behaviorally, um, their medical and behavioral quality of life is so, uh, so poor and has no prognosis for recovery that we do offer a humane euthanasia for those animals. But for 95, close to 95% of the animals that come to us, we're able to place those. And, um, and that's really the trend in most of the Northern and urban uh, parts of our country. Um, across the South, there still is an overwhelming um, overpopulation issue, but I'll talk about that maybe later. Um, but in our community, we've got that balance. And in many communities across the country, we have that balance. And um, so what is our role now going forward? If we've got the overpopulation issue under control, what is our role? Uh, what does the community need from us? And the answer that we're coming up with is the community needs from humane societies um, to be the organization that advocates for keeping that bond intact wherever possible, that says the bond and the benefits of a relationship with a companion animal, it's not, it's not a class privilege. It's not, it's not something that should only be reserved for uh, a select few carefully screened and, and interviewed uh, people, but that it should be available to anybody who wants and needs it. Um, animals help so many of us from children with learning disabilities to uh, veterans with PTSD to isolated seniors who are battling loneliness and depression and um, to people like Eric who are dealing with uh, life-threatening health conditions and need to find a way to be more active uh, physically and also need a conduit to a social connection. Um, dogs especially are incredible conduits, although cats, cats own the internet. So if you want social connections on the internet, you need a cat, <laughs> uh, they, they rule. Um, but dogs get you out. Uh, dogs get you out of the house. You have to get out and walk them. And dogs get you a social connection um, to other people. People will, as Eric points out in his book so poignantly, uh, he went from being um, an overweight, invisible human being who was afraid to connect with others and who others sort of didn't see and then he adopted Petey and he started walking and people connected to him through Petey and treated him as a or regular human being to talk to. And it breaks my heart a little bit that that is the experience for, for people for, of any kind, you know, whether it's through 
disability or health or weight or race or class status, that there are people in our community who feel invisible. And to read this story and to know in my own experience through 16 years in animal welfare, how much animals connect us, um, regardless of our background and regardless of our political affiliation or our belief system, um, animals connect us and the love of animals connects us really powerfully. And um, lately in the world, I think maybe that um, might be the biggest gift that animals have to offer us uh, is the ability to connect us across whatever um, manufactured divide we, we think exists. Um, so that's um, a little bit of what, um, what I'm excited about being asked to participate uh, in, in uh, the Salem Reads and the Salem City Club um, program, why I'm thrilled that um, they've picked Walking with Petey. Um, I will be leaving some time for questions, um, but I'll address what is perhaps um, a large question that many of you have is, um, great, so how do I adopt a dog? I want to adopt a dog. I want to save a dog. Uh, I got excited about this. I read the book. I went to your website. There's like two dogs available for adoption. What, how, how do I, how do I adopt a dog? Um, and I will say two things. One is be patient. And the other one is expand your search. Um, in the areas in the north and during COVID when we've suspended, most of us uh, in animal welfare have suspended our transfer programs from the shelters in the south that are um, overflowing. Um, we have a much smaller um, population <laughs> of adoptable dogs. So um, one of the things is, you know, check those websites every day, um, get in the application, which is not intimidating. It's not, it's not a, it's not a process of ruling out. It's just a, you know, gather basic information so we can contact you back. Um, and, um, and be, and be persistent and patient. Um, there are people who have come and adopted dogs from us from Colorado. Um, we have people coming down from Washington to adopt cats and kittens from us from throughout the state of Oregon. Um, so it's really a matter of looking at some of these national um, search engines like Pet Finder to see what else is available at um, other smaller rescues or humane societies. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then the other thing that I would say is also, <laughs> I asked our adoption counselor before I was, um, while I was getting prepped to do this call, our customer service manager, I said, um, what would you like me to tell people most importantly, if I had one thing to say to people who want to adopt a dog, um, what would you want me to say? And her answer was in total alignment with the walking with PD book. And she said, tell them to make sure to choose a dog that matches their lifestyle. It will set them up for the most success. And I thought that was so perfect because I loved Eric saying, I was an overweight middle-aged man with skin problems. And I went and I adopted an overweight middle-aged dog with skin problems and we healed each other. So 
With that, um, I'm going to turn it over to Cindy and Bob for Q&A. And thank you so much for being here today and listening to me. Well, thank you, BJ. Um, what a great presentation on, on connection and purpose, actually. Um, I'm sure many of us can really relate to your remarks because of our own strong bonds with our own animals, which adds so much to our lives. Just great remarks. The bond is often stronger than many of us ever imagined. And so now we'll move to the question and answer period from the audience. And just a quick review um, for people in the audience wanting to ask questions. All registered attendees logged in on a computer, pad, iPad or smart device of some kind, have a raise hand icon or button on your screen. If you have a question to ask of BJ, please click on the button to raise your hand. Uh, people will be called on as time permits and your microphone will be activated when you are called on but you must click on your own microphone icon to be heard. So don't forget to click on your, your unmute button. You may also write a question using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. And I don't think we have anyone joining by phone. I'll keep watching and if somebody adds uh, and to give direction there. So um, with that, we do have um, one, uh, about three questions in the um, Q&A. So uh, let's start with Shannon Prem. I hope I got that right. Um, where do you see the, um, uh, the Humane Society in five years, 10 years? Oh, that's a big question. Um, and um, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to give some, my brain always gives big umbrella answers. Um, so I really see the Willamette Humane Society uh, evolving into our mission statement. Um, so if you recall, I said it's about um, establishing, maintaining, and enhancing the connection between pets and people and this the human-animal bond. So primarily, we've been, a we've been focused, and most people think of the first part, establish. So in short terms, I say our mission statement is about get them, keep them, and make them better. <laughs> So the first part, establishing that bond, is about connecting people through adoption. It's helping pets who are in need of new homes find new homes, connecting people with pets, helping them find a new kitten, a new dog. Um, but we are really in the process of not leaving that behind, of course. It's, part of, it's a very essential part of our mission, but evolving into the next two phases, which are about maintaining and enhancing. So... How can we help people when they reach out to us because they found a stray animal or they have an animal that they are not able to keep for often very complex reasons? Um, the study shows that, uh, varying studies show, but between, uh, between 80 and 90% of the people who reach out to surrender their pets to shelters or municipal agencies don't want to give up their pet. They just don't see that they have any other options. Um, and it's usually a combination of factors. And most of those factors have nothing to do with the animal themselves. Um, it's a combination of lifestyle, housing, access to housing, financial resources, um, time, um, and oftentimes some behavioral support. So, and those get all jumbled together. Um, and 
And oftentimes we found people are not reaching out to us until the very last possible minute because they don't want to give up their animal. So they avoid having the conversation with us. And where we're moving now is to start engaging the community earlier in the process and finding ways that the Willamette Humane Society can help keep pets and people together. What can we provide? Um, we have some small programs that we do with partners like Salem Hospital and Fetch to provide short-term foster. Well, if a patient is uh, unwilling to seek help because they don't have anyone to care for their pets, the Fetch program will step in, work with us to care for that pet while the patient recovers. Um, we we uh, we partner with the Center for Hope and Safety to help them um, keep pets and families together when they are in, in crisis. Um, and those are small programs, but we wanna be able to, to reach further into the community. In the next five to 10 years, I really see us uh, establishing more relationships with the human social service agencies in our community because those agencies that are serving humans, a large percentage of those humans have pets and those pets are their family. And we, we learned that from Hurricane Katrina. We continue to learn it every day. So I want to find ways that we can partner with those agencies to see how can Willamette Humane Society help in that case management model to have positive outcomes. Um, and it should be so beneficial for everybody because uh, pets are actually considered what's called a, a protective factor for um, for people when they are in crisis. And a protective factor means they're more likely to seek help, they're more likely to be successful with the help that they find, and they're more likely to recover quickly from, uh, from a crisis event. So we really wanna keep pets with their people and we wanna find more ways to do that. So that's a big, uh, that's a big area of um, growth uh, and outreach uh, for us as an organization. I'll say there's more things, but that's enough. <laughs> All right, thank you, BJ. So now from Ron Ikas, is there a difference between cats and dogs as far as adoption rates go? So, uh, well, first question is, do you mean rates as in terms of adoption fee or rates as in how fast they get adopted? I'm gonna assume it's in like how well, how easily do we get them adopted? Um, uh, well, why don't you speak to them both? Okay, I will speak to them both. Um, our intake numbers are about, cats are uh, account for about 75% of our intake. Um, so in, in very rough terms, and our, don't quote me on these numbers because I'm rounding grossly, but that would mean about 3,000 animals are cats and 1,000 of them are dogs. Um, the so we need to move a lot more cats into homes and we are doing that um and i will say when i started i never thought it would be possible and i'm i'm so thrilled that it is <laughs> um we are now able to find um amazing i mean yes it's easy to adopt kittens and they fly out of the shelter and everybody wants to adopt kittens and there seems to be no shortage of them um, but we also have people that come to us and say, um, I want to adopt a cat who needs me. I want to adopt the older cat, the cat that's been here for a long time, the cat that's too shy to come up and meet people at their kennel. Um, we have people who have adopted hospice cats, diabetic cats. Um, we have had uh, blind cats adopted. Um, and so I'm 
just so touched by the community that steps up to um, to love and um, provide the the homes for all these cats. Um, our dog, so the rate of, of uh, success is close to 95% for both dogs and cats. So they are almost all of them going home. Um, we actually have a, and I would say this year, particularly in COVID maybe, um, our length of stay for dogs has gotten longer because our dogs have needed more behavioral support in order to make a successful transition into a new home. Um, a lot of our adult dogs come in to us. Uh, they may be, um, they could, they could come to us as strays from Polk County. They could come to us as transfers, uh, stray dogs from Marion County once they've finished their stray hold and if they aren't reclaimed to owner, um, or they've come in as owner surrendered dogs. Very few, although at this moment we do have puppies in our system, <clears throat> don't all run. <laughs> um, most of them are adult dogs. Most of them have got some socialization gaps, um, things that they missed in their early education, whether it's, um, you know, house training, polite leash skills, uh, how to be around other dogs without losing their minds, um, <laughs> how to be around uh, strangers without um, being overwhelmed with anxiety. So our behavior and training department is really key, um, but those dogs take longer to adopt. Um, and we tend to um, have them in care longer. Um, we do, uh, amazingly have, um, two puppies on our website at this point, four months old. So, you know, if you're looking, um, <laughs> there will likely be a flood of applications, but as of, you know, 11 o'clock this morning, when I checked, there were not outstanding applications on those puppies. So, they're mixed breed. They're going to be big dogs when they grow up, but um, they are uh, super cute. And then there's a couple of adult dogs on the website. But really, when you look at our website, it's like four dogs and we've got 30 people on this call. And if half of them were interested in getting a new dog, we wouldn't be able to meet that. Right. So um, I do encourage, like I said, I do encourage people to look at other shelters and Marion County and other municipal agencies when they're looking. Um, and then in terms of the question of, of, of rates, uh, our cat adoption fees are much lower uh, than our dog adoption fees. And that is mostly because we have to keep moving um, more cats. So when it comes right down to it, it is a, really a supply and demand. Um, but our adoption fees are a very small drop in the revenue bucket. Um, so the one thing I really want to make clear is that our adoption fees do not offset the cost <laughs> that we incur uh, caring for and rehoming um, the animals, but they help. So it's helpful. Okay, thank you. And now from Jean, could you, uh, to BJ, of course, uh, could you please comment about pets who live with their unsheltered owners? And just a, a note, so Hans West has a question and he's going to ask it himself. And to Hans, I'm coming to you next. So, all right. Um, yes, uh, so pets and their unhoused, um, unhomed owners, um, that is, um, that is another one of the areas that I hope that we can grow into, um, being able to, uh, provide some support beyond, um, right now we transfer our, uh, donated food that we are not using in the shelter. We transfer all through to Arches, um, 
and make it available so people who need food uh, can reach out, people who need food for themselves who are going to Arches or people who need food for their dogs as well uh, or, or cats um, can get free food support. But I really see, um, and we certainly don't have time to talk about the complexity of the homeless problem um, in Salem or in our country <laughs> right now. It's, it's huge, it's very complicated, but I do think it's important that we find always in the solutions that we try in that area that we make sure that we are including pets um, because of their protective factor, because those pets are loved and because they already have a family we need to be able to find a way to keep those families together, whether it's a family of one two-legged and one four-legged or more than that. Okay, thank you. So Hans, um, the, the floor is yours. You can unmute your mic. Hello, uh, Hans West City Club member. So um, you've partially, uh, well, you have addressed this to a certain extent, but how has COVID affected your operations for better or worse? And how many of these changes that you've had to make uh, do you think will persist into the post COVID era? Thank you, Hans, what a great question. Um, yes, it certainly has impacted us. <laughs> um, one of the things, um, the, one of the very first things that we had to do was uh, split our work team into kind of three uh, groups. We had uh, two groups that never crossed paths that cared for the animals in the shelter and dealt with intake and adoption. And then we had a third group of everybody who could work from home and we sent them all to work from home. And um, like every school district, we started scrambling for Chromebooks. Um, <laughs> so um, what, but what we've learned from this, um, one is that it's not sustainable to keep those split teams for too long and we're getting ready to, to put them back together. Um, as, uh, as we move forward. Um, but we learned most importantly that the word, so, and this is kind of a counterintuitive thing. Um, we've had more successful adoption placements when we moved to appointment only and having all the conversations with people before they come into the shelter um, and having them matched up with a cat or a dog before they come. Um, and it's very, it's reminiscent of Eric's experience at the Humane Society of Silicon Valley, where they sat with him and they, you know, spent an hour or two uh, not grilling him on whether he was going to be uh, worthy of adoption, but really digging in to understand what his lifestyle was and what he was looking for in his companion animal. And then they brought out the perfect dog for him, which was not what he thought. Remember, he says he thought the perfect dog for him was gonna be an eight pound golden retriever. And, and a lot of people are like, yeah, I want a perfect little, I want a golden doodle, you know, that'll be perfect. I'm like, oh, that's a lot of dog. Um, so allowing the animal welfare uh, employees and volunteers to help select and help direct and answer the questions, um, has actually resulted in more in, in less returns. Uh, we always accept returns if the adoption doesn't work out, but we've had a, a very low uh, percentage of return during COVID. Um, 
We did initially early in COVID get a lot of animals out into foster homes and adopted from foster homes. That's kind of fallen back more due to some staff turnover than to uh, the, the desire in the community. So we're ramping that program back up again to, to keep, uh, because I think that that's uh, an ideal place, uh, particularly for a lot of our dogs who struggle uh, behaviorally in the shelter. Well, that's not true. A lot of our cats too, <laughs> who struggle in the shelter environment, it's going to be um, much better for them to be adopted from a foster home. So we're definitely looking at building that back up um, to kind of early COVID feel. Um, the other thing that we learned is we went to a seven day a week operation um, because we were, there was no reason not to. <laughs> we were doing everything by appointment and we had staff in the building seven days a week, the way we divided it up. And we found that we could do that. We're definitely not going back from that. We're, um, we're in the process of, of seeing how that goes. And then the biggest thing, which, you know, is going to be an important thing for the community to understand, and it's going to be a challenging thing for them to understand, is that our animals in care stayed healthier during COVID than we've ever seen it before in our experience. Um, and we saw this reflected in other shelters as well. And what we found is that by not having people and noises and strangers pouring through the uh, animal areas all day, the animals were calmer, less stressed, and consequently healthier. So we went through kitten season and we often had no animals in our isolation ward for upper respiratory viruses, which are usually raging through the shelter and highly contagious, not lethal anymore uh, because we have the space to treat it. But this year, it was shocking. Um, I mean, our veterinarian can tell you what the actual percentage reduction was, but it was, I would say, it has to be close to 90% reduction in the, in the disease. Um, and when the animals did get sick with an upper respiratory virus, it would it generally just stayed at the viral level, so they recovered more quickly and were able to go home. They didn't get secondary bacterial complications. So we're going to be looking at finding ways to keep the kennel traffic down for the animal's health. And that's going to be a, a change for us in the shelter um, post-COVID. The other, the, and then the other thing that we're learning like every other business in the country is that we are actually able to have a lot more flexibility in our staffing and where people work. We have more people working from home. We'll continue that because we were hitting uh, space crunches of like, okay, we need these people to do these programs and support us, but where are we going to put their desk? Where are they going to sit? Let's jam another person in that closet. I mean, we we converted closets to offices, you know, and um, so now we can have uh, desk sharing and and remote work, and that's going to allow us to be a lot more flexible. Great. Uh, pandemic kind of gives rise to change in many many areas. So. Yeah. Silver so, learning, I called yeah. them. Yes. Uh, so Gretchen Jensen asks. What is your need for volunteers and what types of volunteer jobs do you have? Oh, thank you. Um, yes, because I have my little list here of how you can help. And, and second on the list is volunteer. Um, 
we are just beginning to move volunteers back into our program. Um, and we've had some uh, brought in during COVID in very strategic and, and limited ways. Um, but this week we had our first online virtual volunteer orientation on Wednesday and we had 30 people um, complete that. We've, this is a huge silver lining of COVID. Our volunteer program is growing up so fast and is becoming much more accessible to people because of the remote technology. So now we're able to do orientation online and people don't have to be able to get a ride into the shelter or come in during uh, work, you know, hours that are inconvenient to them. And so we've got that, we're moving all of these uh, stages uh, to an online platform, much more accessible to people. Um, and we're developing a um, an upfront peer mentorship uh, in the very beginning stages. So we're pairing prospective volunteers with on-site volunteer mentors uh, for that kind of first interview. What do you want to do? What? How do you want to be involved with Willamette Humane? Um, in terms of the areas of need, I'm not going to speak to those directly because I will. Our community engagement manager is responsible for putting all those together, and she is in the process of meeting with all of the program managers to assess what their needs are. Um, but if you go to our website and look at getting involved and volunteering, um, you'll get a lot more information about how to do that. But there's dog walkers and there's thrift store and there's spay neuter clinic and there's adoption ambassadors. So there's lots of, lots of different ways. Great. Thanks for that. And now a question, and I'm not sure I understand it, but is there an explanation for the difference between north and south in animal welfare? Um, yeah, so when I refer to the south or the northern tier, um, there are um, there are differences, the differences in um, shelter populations and uh, how well resourced the shelters are. So across the south, uh, whether it's the southeast in places like, uh, you know, Mississippi and Georgia and Louisiana and Texas, um, Arizona, uh, these areas, um, there's population density, there's poverty, there's higher poverty rates, there's um, perhaps a different, um, there are some cultural differences around spay and neuter, or even there's issues with access to the services uh, of those things, um, especially in areas with um, high rates of poverty, there often is not access to uh, health services for your animals or spay neuter. So the population keeps <laughs> skyrocketing. Um, and so there are shelters uh, I, I, that there's one that um, we have a national leadership call every Friday with a couple hundred leaders from around the country, north, south, east, west, in between. Um, and there was a presentation from a shelter in um, Arizona near the Mexico border. Um, and south of Tucson, I believe, if I get my geography right, um, that takes in 300,000 animals a year. Now I was at our shelter when we were taking in 12,000, I cannot conceive of, of just logistically what it's like to take in 300,000 animals a year. And to how would you have any hope at all in rehoming those animals in your community? So 
in the South, it's not that these shelters are bad. I mean, they have incredible management and they're engaging in everything that they can to save lives. But one of the things that they need really critically until they can get ahead of the overpopulation issue are transfer programs that move, that redistribute the, um, the, the animal population, dogs and cats from these areas that are under-resourced and overpopulated to areas in the North. I mean, we still talk about kitten season and talk about being a little bit overwhelmed with cats. There are shelters in New England that are importing adult cats on transfer programs from Southern shelters on the Eastern uh, seaboard and around the Gulf um, because they don't have any cats. I mean, it's, it's one thing we can say, yes, we've been in a transfer program bringing dogs in from Texas and Southern California for, for years. Um, but the idea that we would not have any cats for people who want to adopt cats is like, it's coming. I mean, I think, you know, we're going to, we're going to get a balance. We're going to get to a balance point where, where we have um, the Southern tier states um, supported and balanced as well, but it's going to take, it's going to take a few more years, but I would say in five to 10 years, we probably will have this balanced more nationwide, not just in the, in the Northern and urban areas. Okay. Well, thank you, BJ. And we've got about two minutes left for questions. So I'm going to combine two. Could you speak um, a bit about your funding and are, if financial donations are adequate now, just a little bit uh, broader discussion of the funding. Yeah. um, Thank you also to Eric Gray last night on his zoom call for encouraging people to donate locally um, and to, and he really, I really appreciated the fact that he made the distinction that every local humane society is an independent nonprofit, uh, completely reliant on their local community for support. So we're not part of a national organization. We're not part of a state organization. We're not, you know, we're just here in Marion and Polk County serving the animals and people of Marion and Polk County. So, so our support comes from the people in our community, and it is um, in my list of how you can help. It is number one <laughs> that um, that donating uh, in whatever form is uh, is sustainable uh, for you. Um, donations are really important. The bulk of our donations come from individuals. They don't come from um, industry grantors like Petco or PetSmart, um, and they don't come from wonderful our wonderful local sponsors. I hear so many of the people in the City Club sponsor, the businesses that are sponsored. I see their name all over the place, supporting you know Liberty House and Willamette Humane Society and Marion Polk Food Share. And I'm so grateful we have a community that is engaged and supportive. Uh, of the organizations, um, and our Golden Hearts Club, our our monthly sustaining members who give twenty dollars or a hundred dollars, or we even have a member who gives four hundred dollars a month. Um, those folks, no matter how big or how small that monthly donation is, that's the backbone of our of our donor program. Um, so there's. Yes, uh, we always need more. Uh, we are currently operating at a deficit to, to provide the level of care that the community wants us to provide and continue to maintain this live release rate of close to 95%. So yes, we always have need. <laughs> 
Okay, well, unfortunately, I think we have run out of time and we need to allow Sharon um, to close the program. So thank you so much, BJ, for, the, for your words today uh, and, and comments about that incredible bond so many of us have. Thank Great. you. Great, thank you, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to hearing from you. If you want to contact me at Willamette Humane Society. Thank you. Bye. Coach. Oh, thank you very much. That was a that was a very interesting program and good questions today. Um, I am really pleased that we have uh, had so many interesting programs, and our program committee is still actively working to fill out the programs for the rest of the year. Um, it's a, a a lot of work to put all these programs on. Um, we do hope that you will join us for our next program on February 19th. The uh, program is Fresh Perspectives on a Very Different Legislative Session. We'll hear from Representative Raquel Moore Green and Senator Deb Patterson, who are both newly elected last November. They will talk about being new to the legislature and in the legislature's way of operating during a pandemic. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more details about the program. Thank you so much for attending today. Have a good weekend.